uh, just good to see all of you again tonight. A number of years ago, when I was working with university students, I uh, was sitting out in front of Stanford Memorial Church waiting for a student to uh, show up for an appointment. It seems like I used to spend a lot of time just waiting for people to show up. And uh, there was a uh, young man sitting beside me reading a Stanford Daily, and we struck up a conversation. And uh, after a, a bit of talk, I asked him if he had any interest in spiritual things. And he just absolutely blew his cork. He jumped to his feet, wadded up the paper, and, and started to storm off. And he took two or three steps away and turned around and looked at me and said, I just can't believe it. He said, everywhere I go, some idiot talks to me about God. And, uh, and left. I found out later that he was a, uh, was a missionary kid. He, uh, his parents were Presbyterian missionaries in Taiwan and had been praying for him for years. And the Lord had been hounding him. And it really was true. Every place he went, he, he encountered someone who confronted him with the gospel. It was just another reminder to me that the Lord really does hound us down. He just never leaves us alone. And I really would have to say that about uh, the last few months. And uh, (laughs) the sort of things that have transpired in my life, and I'm not implying that some idiot from Boise kept calling me. (laughs) Not at all. And, and, and really, there's been no reluctance at any point to come. It's just been interesting to see how every time I headed in another direction, the Lord just kept turning me back. And it's just so obvious that this is the place God wants us. I would have to say, however, that the thing that turned me into, into pure putty, really the deciding point, was A.J.'s cherry pies. That's what it just broke down all resistance. I was never the same after that. <laughs> now, I'm really convinced that, that God's will is not a hard thing to find. It's not some secret that God is trying to keep hidden from us. He wants us to know his will far more than we want to know it. He really does. The only way you miss God's will is if you don't want it. I I have looked in vain for some pattern in Scripture, some consistent pattern for discovering the will of God, and I think there are some guidelines that are given. But there's nothing very precise there. It's really God's problem to let us know. We can use wisdom. We can look for open doors. There are any number of things that we need to, uh, to use as guidelines, but ultimately it's God's problem. He has to get us where we want to be. And he uses some very creative ways to get us there. But the assurance that we have is that if we want God's will, we will not miss it. You absolutely cannot miss God's will if you want it. And so that's a sort of restful thing, and that's the attitude that we've uh, taken all along. And we're convinced we're here because God led us here, and this is God's will for us. So we're excited. I'd like to have you turn to Acts 20 to a passage that uh, for me, for many years, has been a, uh, a pattern passage for my ministry. It used to frustrate me terribly when I, when I first began to uh, teach and uh, work with people that there, weren't, uh, there was no manual in the New Testament for ministry. I kept looking for an ABC approach to the ministry. 
and I just couldn't find it any place. There are basic principles there again, but uh, but a specific procedure, a step-by-step procedure, eluded me. It just I just couldn't find it, and the reason I couldn't find it is because it isn't there. Now I'll tell you why I think it's not there. If it were there, I think we would trust it. That's what we would follow instead of depending upon the Spirit of God. And uh, one thing I've learned about the Spirit of God is that uh, while there are certain predictable patterns that he follows, basically he is the most creative individual on the face of the earth, and you never know what he's going to do next. And the pattern that he develops in one place or the plan that he develops in one place is unique. That's what concerns me a little bit about uh, preoccupation with these how-we-did-it-here books, you know, that, that, are, that are worthwhile in their own right. I'm not at all against people writing books on how-we-did-it-here. But our tendency is to take a book about how we did it here and do it here. <laughs> and I'm not, I, I am convinced that God just doesn't do things here necessarily the way he did it someplace else. So we can't come in with some sort of preconceived plan and foist it down on a group and say, this is the way we're going to do it because it worked there. It, it doesn't necessarily work that way. He's, he's creative. So we can't find that sort of... Uh, clearly spelled out definitive statement of ministry, but we can find general principles, and that's what I see here in Acts 20. These principles obtain any place, not, not just uh, in Palo Alto or just in Boise, but I think they're universal principles. And that's why this passage has been so helpful to me. Now this, uh, you know, Luke, Luke, of course, wrote the book of Acts as well as the book of Luke, and he's just a, a superb historian. Uh, I, I don't think I ever had a good history teacher all the way through school, and even to this date, I, I've never had a really good history teacher. History is always kind of boring, although I'm personally very much interested in history. It's, fine to, it's hard to find someone who writes good history, but Luke really writes good history, and we, we sometimes miss that because it's a book in the Bible and we expect it to be unique because it's God's Word. And we miss the fact that Luke is really an excellent historian. And what he does is weave together events and people and motives and, and all the dynamics that go into good history so that what you see is a picture of life as it unfolded in the early church. It's good history. One of the things Luke does, it's very interesting, and, and most people are not aware of it, is to gather together patterned messages to show us how the apostles preached. Now, there are three messages that are given by Paul that Luke includes. They're obviously shortened because I'm sure he spoke uh, much longer than, than the record that we have. But, but they're, they're shorthand notes, perhaps, that Luke took, a shortened version of these, of these messages. In chapter 13, you have an example of a message that Paul gave to a Jewish audience. That's uh, the message that he gave in a synagogue in Antioch. So we have an example of Paul's teaching to Jews. This is the way he approached the Jewish audience. In chapter 17, you have an example of Paul's teaching to Gentiles when he debated with the uh, Areopagi in, in Athens. So you have an example of Paul's approach to an unbelieving Gentile audience. Interesting, huh? And then in chapter 20, you have an example of Paul's teaching to the church. So of the three classes that the New Testament recognizes, Jew, Gentile, and the church, you have an example of Pauline teaching, of Paul's method of teaching, to each of these groups. What Acts 20 gives us is, is a sample of the way he would approach a church. This is the way he taught the church. And it's just as appropriate for us today as it was on the day that, that Paul uh, addressed these words to the Ephesian elders. Now, a second thing that I want you to note about this chapter is that it's very 
very easy to uh, to uh, divide or to uh, organize. Paul is a very good speaker, and and the passage is organized very clearly. If you notice, uh, the message begins in verse 18. And when they had come to him, he said to them, and then the message begins at that point, and it goes through chapter through verse 35 of chapter 20. In verse 22, you read, And now, behold, bound in spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem. In verse 25, And now, behold, I know. In verse 32, And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. And that gives us the divisions of, of Paul's message, this little expression, and now, which actually marks off a new paragraph, a new set of ideas. Secondly, if you notice, the first paragraph, verses 18 through 20, is all put in the past. All the verbs are in the past tense. I was with you, in verse 18. I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. That, that's all in the past. So Paul, in that first section of his message, talks about his ministry to the church in Ephesus in the past, as he viewed it. And then if you'll notice, verses 20 through 24 are essentially in the present tense. So he's talking about his attitude right now. This is the way I'm thinking. This is where I'm going. This is what I'm going to do. And then, as you would expect, 25 through 31 is cast in a future tense. This is what will happen to the church in Ephesus. And then verses 32 through 35 are Paul's legacy. He hands on to them a sort of last will and testament. Okay? So that's the way the message is put together. Now let's look at it, look at each section in some detail. Verse 17. And from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's the first uh, unit of Paul's message, and uh, he essentially says two things in that paragraph. He talks first about the fact that he was with them, and he describes the nature of that association, his relationship with them. And then secondly, he says that he declared the truth to them. I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house. In other words, Paul's ministry to the people in Ephesus was a, was a two-phased ministry. He was with them. He built relationships. He got to know them. He built friendships. And he taught them the scriptures. And that's the heart of any ministry. Teaching people and loving them. It's what Paul describes as teaching the truth in love. And you cannot do without either element. If you merely teach, you just intellectualize. If you merely love people, you just sentimentalize. You need both. To ask which is more important, relationship or teaching, is like asking which wing of a bird is most important. You just need them both. Without love, teaching is arid and, and cold and ineffective. You have to build friendships and relationships with, with people really before you have the right to speak to them from the Word. The thing that strikes me about Paul's ministry, throughout his entire ministry, he worked out of that context of friendship. He could say some of the hardest things that you could imagine to people. 
really some very uh, some very difficult things. Confront people about their sin. Be very straightforward about areas of indifference and, and departure from truth in their life. But it's always done in the context of love. You see? You can't do without both elements. As Paul puts it in 2 Timothy, he's writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy. And uh, the problem with young men like Timothy is that, that they sometimes uh, they, they tend to wait teaching and uh, the more intellectual side of a ministry and uh, perhaps not be as sensitive to the need that people have for love and care and concern. And he says to Timothy, don't argue with people. The servant of God must not strive but be gentle with people, patient, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. Perhaps, he says, God will give them release from Satan who has ensnared them. And Paul's point is that you, you can't just deliver people by teaching at them. You have to love them as well. And you see that so clearly in Paul's life. That though he was very straightforward in his teaching, he was always very straightforward in his relationship with people. He loved them deeply from his heart. And you can see that, an indication of that element in Paul's life in verses 36 through 38. But at the end of this, uh, of this message... Luke's comment, and Luke was there, by the way, this is part of the we section of Acts, that is the, the part of Acts that, that is, uh, comes right out of, of Luke's uh, own personal experience. He was with Paul at the time. And when he said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and they, and they began to weep aloud and embraced Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken that they should see his face no more. That's the kind of love that they had for one another, and it was that sort of climate that made it possible for Paul to teach in an effective way. Now I want you to note that Luke or Paul describes for us here the characteristics of his association in verse 19. He says first of all that it was that it involved serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. First he really did see that what he was doing was service rendered to the Lord. And that, for me, is a very important concept. We are not fundamentally serving people. Although our ministry is described as uh, that of being a, a servant to people, we are, more importantly, serving people for the Lord's sake, as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 4. We are serving the Lord. And it's that concept alone that can deliver us from an awful lot of frustration because people are not easy to serve. They don't always respond. They will disappoint you. And if we're serving people alone, we're going to get awfully disillusioned. We have to see that ultimately we're serving the Lord and not people. Uh, Paul, for example, invested almost all of his ministry or a great portion of his ministry in the churches in Asia Minor, Iconium and Lystra and, and Derby and those churches there. Later he could write to, to Timothy and say, all who are in Asia have forsaken me. Well, that's all the people that he administered to through the, through the bulk of his life. And yet they turned against him. And yet there's no note of self-pity or, or resentment in Paul's words in Second Timothy. It's simply a statement of fact. They turned against him. And while it hurt Paul, it didn't in any way inhibit his ministry because he really understood that what he was doing was serving the Lord and not people. Many times I come back, uh, come home all bummed out because of the way somebody treated me or the way they didn't respond to something that I said or in a way that I expected. And Carolyn has said to me 
Men will always disappoint you. Try Jesus. That's a good word. People will always disappoint us. And the thing that keeps us dogged in our pursuit of our ministry is recognizing that what we are doing, we are doing for the Lord's sake. And not merely for people's sake. That's number one. The second thing that Paul says here in uh, verse 19 is that he served with humility. But for myself, as I understand the term, humility implies a correct assessment of yourself. That is, just being sober and assessing your gifts and your, and your uh, position in the body of Christ and wanting nothing more or less than what you are in terms of your gifts and your abilities and where you are spiritually. Just being honest and open and genuine. And that, I find, people appreciate. And there's a sort of an occupational hazard in being a teacher in that almost inadvertently you give the impression that you've arrived. Because you're talking about truth and encouraging people to act according to truth, you can, without being aware of it, give the impression that you're living up to all the truth you're teaching. And not, not one of us is. We aren't. I mean, I'm just like you. I sin. Now, you sin, and I sin. And when I sin, I sin with gusto. But the tendency is to take someone who's a teacher and put them on a pedestal and be very unrealistic about where they are. And, and, and you're, we're threatened by them. We're afraid to approach them because we think they don't understand. They don't have the same struggles that we have. And what Paul says is that he, in terms of his ministry to the people at, at Ephesus, acted in humility. He was just honest about where he was. And I've discovered that you don't lose face with people when you do that. But quite the contrary, people are drawn to real people. We struggle with the same things that they struggle with. I had to learn this in sort of a hard way. I, I uh, was going up to the Furs a few weeks, a few years ago, to speak at a conference, a family conference. And it was one of those weeks when everything happened at once. And I called Carolyn from the office and uh, said, Hon, I, uh, I have to catch a plane, you know, at, at 3 o'clock. And uh, I don't have time to get home and pack, but you throw some things in a suitcase and uh, I'll just whiz by and pick these things up and go on down to the airport. I said, fine. So uh, I was a little late getting away from the church, and it was a little after 2 o'clock, and it's about a 40-minute drive from my house to the airport, and I was running right down to the wire. So I dashed through the house, ran into the living room to pick up my suitcase, and there was a suitcase, and here were a couple of shirts over here, and I looked inside, and there was hardly anything in there. And I said, well, what's, you know, what's going on? And she said, well, you know, this happened, and this happened, and this happened, and I just couldn't get it all together. And I just blew my stack. I was storming around the house like a little king. <laughs> and it sounded like one of those, uh, that hypothetical situation that uh, Steve set up for us this morning, except it really happened. And we were standing about a foot from each other, yelling, and and finally, I just threw some things in the suitcase and stormed out the front door and threw them in the back of my car and slammed the hood, you know, and I'm sure that was neat for all the neighbors. And I <laughs> drove off to the airport, you know, and, and I don't know about you, but uh, once you throw a little temper tantrum like that, it doesn't take you long to see how silly you look. And I was about halfway to the airport, and I really felt like a fool. And I got to the airport, and I called Carolyn and apologized, and she cried. You know how women are. And uh, 
but I had just this tremendous heaviness of heart all the way up there on the flight, and we got there, and I started teaching, and it just it was ironic. I had I had chosen as the first passage that uh, the First Peter three passage on the home, and I got down to verse seven: Husbands, live with your wives according to knowledge, because she is a weaker vessel, because you're joint heirs of eternal life, and all of that. And I was so smitten in spirit, I couldn't even talk. And so I, you know, here these were Canadians mostly. You know how conservative Canadians are. And so I just, I stopped right in the middle of what I was doing and just told them what had happened. People gasped, turned white. <laughs> but, you know, it was one of the neatest conferences I've ever had. I had people come up afterward and tell me, yeah, you know, I understand. We do the same thing. And I learned from that that... Uh, you know, God doesn't expect perfection. He expects progress. That's all he looks for. He just wants to see growth. And we're all struggling with the same things, and we need to be honest about it. We're all just made out of dust. God knows our, our frame. He knows what we're made of. He's not disappointed in our failure. and We shouldn't be disappointed in one another when we fail. We ought to just be honest and open and work together for one another's growth. And that's what Paul's talking about here, I believe, when he speaks of humility. And then thirdly, with tears and with trials. And let me summarize just a whole lot of thoughts by saying that I, that I think what he's talking about here is empathy. Just caring about people. Understanding the struggles that they go through. I, a number of years ago, we, we discovered a tumor on our uh, middle boy's uh, arm. He was about, I guess, about 13 at the time. And, and the doctor told us that if it was a melanoma, that they'd have to take his arm off. And boy, what a shock for parents. And I just remember a neighbor came over, and he didn't say much. He, uh, he could have laid a lot of theology on me because he knew a great deal of truth. But he just sat in our living room and just, just wept. And uh, I knew that he loved me. I knew that he cared about me. And, and that's what Paul's talking about. You see, it's out of that kind of context that we minister, a climate of caring for one another and upholding one another and, and loving one another. You can say almost anything to anyone if they know that you love them. And, and that's Paul's point. And so I, I, I see here the heart of any ministry. It involves teaching and not shrinking back from even saying the hard things and confronting people in areas where they're walking in disobedience. But coupled with that is a spirit of compassion and love and, and care. Okay, that's the first thing I think we can learn from this, from this message. Now verses 23 through, uh, through 24. And now, behold, bound in spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, in order that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus, to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Uh, just a couple of comments. Uh, he refers to his course and his ministry. He describes for us what his ministry is. It is to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. If you're careful in your definition of gospel, uh, you will you'll uh, realize that the gospel is not merely the introductory facts of the good news. It's not merely the four laws or uh, those fundamental statements that get people into the family. The gospel is the full range of God's truth. It's the whole counsel of God. Paul, for instance, uh, states in Romans, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it's the power of God and salvation. 
And then he proceeds from that point to tell us what the gospel is. And it's all the book of Romans, you see. So the gospel is more than merely introductory facts. We limit it to the, to the uh, evangelization of the lost. Uh, what Paul is saying here is that his ministry is to impart truth to people wherever they are. If they're non-Christians, then he tells them the introductory facts. If they're in the family, then he, then, then he wants to take them on and teach them more truth. It's, it's the whole counsel of God that we have that's available to us from Scripture. And what Paul is saying is that wherever he goes, he wants to impart truth to people to meet needs. Uh, as Isaiah prays, Lord... Give me the tongue of the learned, that I might know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary, to find people that are weary and hurting and lost, and lead them back, or support them, or encourage them, or minister to them in some way. Now, that's what, that's what Paul's talking about. And that was his ministry. He knew precisely what he was called to do. But he did not know what his course was. His course was the specific uh, uh, procedures that he would uh, go through for that day, the activities of that day. Now, at the end of his life, in 2 Timothy, he, could, he, could, he, he writes Timothy, and he looks back over his life, and he knows he's going to die, and he says, I've finished my course. But at this point, he didn't know what it was. Now, we know, because we uh, read the last chapter in the book. He, uh, he went on to uh, Jerusalem. He was taken captive there. He did suffer, as he says. He was sent to Caesarea. Um, he was imprisoned there for two years. He had an opportunity to preach the gospel to many of the official leaders in, in, uh, uh, in that part of, of the Roman world. And then he was taken to Rome and was under house arrest there for a couple of years. And he was chained to uh, members of the Praetorian Guard, the picked young men of the, of the Roman Empire, the elite corps, the household uh, bodyguards of, of Caesar, for a period of two years. And he could say in the book of Philippians, the things that have happened to me, that is my imprisonment, have proceeded under the furtherance of the gospel because, as he says, the gospel is making its way through the Praetorian Guard. These fine young men who would be untouchable, generally speaking, impossible to get to, be no access to these men. They were finding the Lord and taking the gospel throughout the Roman Empire. Now, who could predict that at this point in Paul's life? You see, this is what makes the Christian life exciting. Paul could say, I don't know where I'm going. I'm headed toward Jerusalem. That's my plan. But I don't know what God's going to do for me. I just know that wherever I go, I'm going to impart truth. And I'm going to trust God to use that truth to change lives. Now, that for me is an exciting way to live your life. The dullest sort of Christian experience is just being routine about it. But once we take this attitude, life starts getting excited. When you roll out of the sack in the morning and say, Lord... I don't know where I'm going today. I don't know what I'm going to be doing. I have some plans, but I'm going to count on you to use me through the day to accomplish whatever purpose you have in mind. And life gets exciting. We don't know what our course is. We just know what our ministry is. It's up to God to set the course. Now, there's nothing wrong with planning. We certainly ought to have planning for a day or a year, or have a five-year plan, or certainly a long and short-range objectives. There's nothing wrong with, uh, with planning. But we need to be flexible and realize that God has the right to change our plans. God has the right to order our days. And if we go out expecting God to use us, then he's going to put us in, in situations that we would never expect to get into and use us in ways that we could never anticipate. And that's when things begin to get exciting. Uh, a few years ago, we were a number of us were uh, working over a passage in the Gospels, the Good Samaritan story. And, 
And it dawned on us that the point of that whole story, well, well, the story, as you know, the Good Samaritan grows out of a question. It was asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? And he tells the story of the Good Samaritan, the point of which is the next person you meet who has a need, that's your neighbor. It's not necessarily the person across the street. That may not be your neighbor at all. It's the person that you encounter today who has a need. And so a number of us decided that on the basis of that principle that we would, uh, we would, would expect to find someone in need through that day who would be our neighbor. And one of the people in that group happened to be a woman. Uh, the next day was driving down the street in her car and it was raining cats and dogs and she uh, looked on the corner and there was a young man and young woman standing there with a little baby and ordinarily, ordinarily she would never pick up hitchhikers. But she felt sorry for this couple and for this little baby, and so she picked them up, and they got in the car. And uh, to make a long story short, um, she took her took this couple home, and they stayed there for a while, and then eventually found a home for them, found out that they were hitchhiking through from New York City. And and within a few days, this, this girl, who was Jewish, found the Lord to be her Savior, and now is in New York City with um, uh, American Mission to Jews, leading her, her Jewish friends to Christ. Now, who could anticipate that sort of thing? Having that sort of impact uh, through, through, a, through a simple act of that nature. And yes, that, that's the sort of thing that the Lord delights to do with us when we make ourselves available. When we're willing to go anywhere, do anything, be whatever God wants us to be, make ourselves accessible to Him. Chart our days, sure, but let God set the course. Now, the next thing Paul tells us in in verses 25 through 31, is all cast in the future tense. And he's talking about uh, what the church in Ephesus could expect once he left. Verse 25, And now, behold, I know that you all among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will see my face no more. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on guard for yourselves, and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Let me say incidentally, this gives us some idea of the worth of God's church. He purchased it, purchased it with his own blood. It is infinitely valuable. And we must see the church in that light. We are not playing for nickels and dimes. It costs the Lord dearly to buy out the church. And therefore... We need to see it as he sees it as a very valuable thing and never use it as a, as a means of, of exalting ourselves, furthering our, our own ego, but to be servants for the cause of Christ, to build his church. It's a valuable, valuable thing. Verse 29, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. It's worth noting, I think, that Paul is uh, passing on his responsibility here to the elders to feed the sheep. We noted in the, in the introductory statement in verse 17 that the church in Ephesus had elders. That is, there was a, there was a multiplicity of, of leaders. The New Testament knows nothing of a dominant figure in a church. As a matter of fact, it's condemned. John speaks of Diotrephes, who love to be first. The pattern of leadership in the New Testament church is always team leadership, a group of men working together to feed the sheep. 
complementing one another with their gifts and their perspective on truth. Because no one individual knows all the truth, has all the gifts, in order to fill out the body completely as God wants to see it uh, mature. And therefore, leadership is always seen in, in the New Testament in terms of team leadership. And this is what Paul is talking about here. He's passing on to the elders the responsibility of equipping the sheep, feeding the sheep. So it doesn't rest on one person, but on all the elders. That's, that's their responsibility. But the thing that strikes me about this passage is that Paul passes on to them the responsibility of leading and, and, and feeding the sheep because, he says, there will be attacks from without and from within. He describes savage attacks from the outside. Wolves who spring in on the flock. Uh, these are the more obvious attacks, the heresies that come in from outside that, that will make inroads in, into, the, into the flock. And the elders need to be aware of, of these attacks. But more importantly, he talks about those from among your own selves, verse 30. From among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. In other words, from within the body, there will be, uh, be men who will rise and who will look good on the at least at, at first hearing. They'll sound good. But they're distorting the truth. And Paul says the answer to this sort of thing is to teach the truth. In other words, be positive. Don't be negative. And again, that's a pattern that I see through Scripture. The way to handle heresy, the way to handle uh, disorder within the church, the way to handle attacks both from without and within is to teach the Scriptures. Just keep on teaching it. Be positive. Don't be defensive. We don't need to write tracts about cults and heretics on the outside. Let's just teach the Scripture. We don't need to be down on any particular groups or condemn any particular groups or talk about certain groups because they're doing it all wrong. Let's just do it right. There are people all around us who don't do it the way we do it. There are people all around us who don't believe the truth, who don't know our Savior. Well, let's love them. Let's be concerned about them. But let's not be negative. Let's just teach the truth. Because the truth is its own best witness. When we teach the truth, it has it a sort of a self-apologetic in Scripture. It's self-confirming. People, once they begin to lay hold of truth, it begins to change their lives. They know it's true. We don't need to defend it. Luther described the Bible as a lion. You don't need to, to guard a lion. You just open the door and let it out. It'll defend itself. So let's don't be negative. Let's don't talk about other groups. Let's be positive and constructive, and build. And then finally, in verses 32 through 35, Paul gives what I think is his last will and testament. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said it is more blessed to give than receive. You know, you look all the way through the Gospels and you'll never find that statement. That's one of the lost words of Jesus that uh, Paul recalled. Uh, this statement, it is more blessed to give than receive, doesn't occur anywhere in, in the Gospels. But it is from, from the lips of our Lord. And Paul says that's, that was the pattern of my ministry. I was a servant. He worked hard to support himself. He labored at his trade in order to support himself when it was appropriate. And he was, he was setting the pattern for the people that he ministered to of servanthood because, after all, that's what leadership is all about. Leadership's not lordship. It's not lashing people. It's not demanding that people shape up. It's serving. 
Jesus said the uh, the Gentiles, uh, they assess leadership by how many people they rule over. You ever hear anybody say that in the world? You know, I have 15 people working for me. Or I have 90 people under me. That That's the way the world assesses leadership. But that's not the way uh, the Lord wants us to, to evaluate leadership. Leadership is always servanthood. It's how many people we serve. And Paul says, that was the pattern of my ministry. I worked hard to serve you. And I did it all, Paul said, so you could be independently dependent on the Lord. You see what he says in verse 32? And now, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. And he got on that boat and he left. And as far as we know, he never went back to Ephesus. But he didn't need to because he had left behind the essential elements. He left the God of the word and the word of God. And that's all they needed. If they had the Lord and they had learned to trust him, and they had the word, and they'd learn how to understand it and to, and to live according to it. That's all they needed. And as, as, as a, in effect, Paul just preached himself out of a job and let God take the consequences. And that's what we need to do. These are not just, uh, you know, this is not just a pattern for, quote, ministers. This is a pattern for all of us. To labor to present men and women mature in Christ. To teach the scriptures and to disciple them and love them and work with them. And bring them to the point that they are independent in their relationship to the Lord. Insofar as any of us are independent, we all need one another. But the point is we can go on our own without being unduly propped up and supported. We're, we're self-sustaining in our relationship to God. That ought to be our goal. That, for me, is, is the purpose of it all, is to see people grow up to maturity. I asked a friend one time if his church was growing. And he said, no, but my people are. And I thought that was that's wisdom. Because that's really what counts. And you know, I, I really don't think any of us ought to care if Cole Community Church grows numerically. It will. Because I think if as we begin to minister, as God sets the pace for us, people will respond to it. But that's not the issue. People, you know, the, the important thing is people. People are God's most important product. Are people growing? Are they maturing? Are they learning to walk independently with the Lord? That ought to be our goal. Not how well-known Cole Community Church is. Not how impressive our buildings are. Not how good our teachers are. Not how wonderful our school is. As good as all those things are. That's not the, that's, that's not the end result of it all. The real issue is, are we turning out people that are mature in Christ? That's the issue. And we ought to evaluate any program on that basis. To what extent does this further that goal? You know, that, that changes our perspective on a lot of things. If we're really interested in people rather than programs and things of that nature, it will change much of our ministry. We really will not care where people go to church, will we? The important thing will be that people grow. They don't have to all come here. They don't have to all be involved in our programs. You know, when we start getting provincial and we feel that it all has to happen here and we have to be responsible for it all and all has to generate out of our congregation and everything that happens has to happen here, God will take our lampstand away. You know, the scriptures are very clear that if you want to want to receive from God, you have to give. You have to give it away. Jesus said, "Full measure, overflowing, pressed down, and it will be given to you." And that's true of individuals. If, uh, Jesus said, "If you want to save your life, lose it. If you want to lose your life, then try to save it." The most miserable people I know are people that are that are looking for people to minister to them. They always want to be served. They're concerned about themselves and they're just terribly unhappy. 
The most satisfied people I know are people who just give themselves. If that's true of individuals, it needs to be true of the church. We just need to give ourselves in loving service. Give our buildings, our buses, our time, our labor, our effort, our people, whatever, to minister the needs here in Boise. If we do that, God will give us a ministry. He'll exalt us. Now, I, I wish I could say that, uh, that if you watch me long enough, you'll see all these things happening in my life. Uh, you won't. But that's all right. We're all under construction. Uh, I read I, I read a story once about a Texas cowboy who had the Lord's Prayer inscribed on the wall at the foot of his bed, and and every night he'd come home tired and he'd jump in bed and he'd say, "Them's my sentiments, Lord," and he'd go to sleep. <clears throat> and I don't advocate that as a prayer life, but uh, but I, I think I understand. And I really have to say, when I look through Acts twenty, those are my sentiments. We thank you, Lord, that that you're the one who who makes life exciting, who gives us the, the will and the courage to be venturesome, to try things that have never been tried before, and to act in ways that that seem to us unreasonable, and yet they're actions in faith and actions based upon your word. Teach us to be men and women of faith who trust you with all of life. And teach us to be servants who give ourselves willingly, without complaint. And teach us to be men and women of the word who believe it and act, act on it and declare it clearly without apology. We ask these things in Jesus' name.